Welcome back to the Temporary Fandoms podcast. One of the best reasons to press on with this time-consuming enterprise is the people whose conversations I get to sit and watch during the recordings. With good intentions, Ewan will occasionally try and draw me into the chat, where I may have assumed the role of awed spectator, but honestly, who cares what I think about these records when you've got engaging storytellers doing their thing? Ostensibly, we're about listening to entire discographies and then talking about them. We did this first as a Facebook group in 2015, and it's still going at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. At the time of recording this, the group is listening to the extraordinary Betty Davis. I hope we can make that one into a podcast one day. In 2020, we adapted it into a podcast, the podcast you're listening to now. If you're not doing so already, I strongly recommend that you take out a subscription and listen on Mixcloud. Why would I do that, you might say? Well, it enables us to embed the tunes in the podcast, which is really how I want you to hear it. A good chunk of that money goes to the featured artist, and whatever is left helps us pay our hosting costs. Anyway, I was talking about having great guests, so I should just let you find out who they are, as we bring you the first of two episodes on Manchester punk legends, Buzzcocks. Hello there, welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Um, as you know, it's a podcast where we invite you to become at least temporary fans, there's the name, of an artist by working our way through their entire, usually studio-only discography, but sometimes we take a few detours along the way. Um, the best place to listen to this, if not on your normal pod player, is at our home in Frequency co.uk where you'll find all the links to this all of our other pods um and a ways that you can support the show via our mixcloud and listen to versions of this with all the songs included um if you're just listening on your normal pod player i mean that's fine and there's a spotify link that you can you know which will have most of the stuff on but yeah why would you anyway um i'm ewan i'm nick i'm john <laughs> oh no! You're way ahead of yourself. You're way ahead of yourself. There, there is a vo- there's a voice there, which um, we'll we'll get back to in a minute. Um, in fact, how about right now? Uh, joining us today, um, uh, well, last time you heard him was on the first of our episodes about the fall. Um, head honcho of Tiny Global Productions, um, record label um, with bands such as the Nightingales, Blue Orchids, John Langford, Bang Holy Joy, much, 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 much more. It's John Henderson. Hey, John, welcome back. Thank you. Well, pl- glad to be here. And also, I mean, segues and links. I mean, you heard John on the, the first of our episodes about the fall. And we got, well, we got author of Leave the Capital, um, drummer of Bricks and the Extricated, various other bands, um, w- was twice on the chase. I thought it was only the once. I was only on, also, I was only on once. If Wikipedia says you were only no, twice. No, they repeated it. Ah, that doesn't count. <laughs> um, and also drummer in the aforementioned The Fall, it's, it's Paul Hanley. Welcome back, Paul. Good evening. Brilliant. Um, Paul, um, just because you're the last one to turn to, who are we doing today? We're doing the, arguably one of the most important bands ever to come from Manchester. Uh, the second most important band to come from Manchester. I'll tell you who the first most important is later on, but um, Buzzcocks. Buzzcocks. Perfect. You are going to do, well, the usual routine. You're going to hear some people talking your, talking their way through a uh, selection of albums, and then we'll come back and talk about them after that. So we'll be back in a bit. Hi there, this is John Henderson, and I'm here to talk about Buzzcock's Spiral Scratch EP. 
Spiral Scratch is uh, hugely important in the history of punk. It really began the explosion of independent labels and self-released records from small bands, even in in villages and and faraway places. And um, it was uh, deservedly a very popular record in the day, uh, unexpectedly so for the band. I think it was pressed somewhere uh, in the neighborhood of 20, 20 times after the initial pressing uh, and it's more or less been in print since then um, it's an important record for a few other reasons first of which is it's just a great record uh, we'll talk more about it in a bit here but it's important to, to mention that it's uh, top notch work from a band uh, that hadn't really ever been in the studio before and uh, they just pulled it off um, second of all it's the first last and only record to feature Howard DeVoto as vocalist Howard uh, soon quit the band to begin magazine, uh, stayed friends with the band, and and later went on to make a, a long stream of really amazing records himself, which will hopefully be covered in a future immersion. Um, but uh, this was his his final say. Uh, he he believed that he said what he had to say in the context of punk and, and left soon after, which led the way for the genius, particularly of Pete Shelley and uh, wee bitch Steve Diggle, to make a string of just incredible pop punk records that uh, created a template for bands that's still widely in use today and uh, to make uh, multiple classics in the meantime. Um We'll be talking about all this stuff in a few moments, but that's your intro. Thank you. Although another music in a different kitchen is the debut Buzzcocks album, in many ways it marks the beginning of phase two of the group's career. Phase one was obviously the Howard DeVoto era, which although it was a massively significant part of the Buzzcocks story, actually only consisted of 12 gigs over a six-month period on one four-track EP, Spiral Scratch. Another Music in a Different Kitchen is actually where I became aware of Buscox. My brother Steve, Mark Riley and Craig Scanlon brought it into our house after attending the album launch at Virgin Records in Manchester. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. It had a matching carrier bag, a black cardboard in a sleeve. It was an absolutely perfect design. By Malcolm Garrett, of course. Luckily, the music was as good as the sleeve, and it remains to this day my favourite album ever. Once I'd become hooked on the album, I obviously worked backwards through What Do I Get an Orgasm Addict to Spiral Scratch. So I always considered Pete the singer, and however good the songs with Howard singing were, they weren't my buzzcocks. So while it's incumbent on me to give a sober and balanced view of the album, it's almost impossible to remove the sense of perfection the 14-year-old me imbued another music in a different kitchen with in 1978. Because if I'm honest, it's still there, but I will have a go. It was recorded at the end of 1977 at Olympic Studios in Barnes, with the brilliant Martin Rushant behind the desk. Rushant would later, of course, go on to produce the Human League's Dare, another perfect piece of shiny pop brilliance. As is the case with most debut albums, the bulk of the material was culled from the group's live set, which they knew backwards and could commit to tape in next to no time. These included the last of the songs with input from Howard DeVoto, Fast Cars, You Tear Me Up and Love Battery. Get On Our Own, 16, Fiction, Romance and Moving Away from the Pulse Beat were written by Pete alone. Of course, that depends on your definition of written. Different bands interpret it very differently. For Buzzcocks, most songs were credited to whomever came up with the basic chord structure and lyric. So Pulse Beat was credited to P. Shelley, though few would argue that the song doesn't rely on John Mars' drums and Steve Diggle's lead guitar to bring it to life. Similarly, 
Kelly's lead guitar on Autonomy is one of the main reasons it's as good as anything else on the album. The song is credited to Diggle alone. The other songs on the album were all performed for the first time at the Roundhouse on December the 6th, and it's testament to the power of Martin Rush's production that the older songs, songs as primitive and punk as You Tear Me Up and Love Battery, can sit quite happily alongside the thoughtful pop of I Don't Mind and I Need. Side One Closer 16 is a good example of the record's ability to effortlessly straddle the line between simplicity and esoterica. There's only two chords, and John Marr mainly plays one drum, but the breakdown is the nearest Buscock's ever got to the structuralist tone poems of Pete's electronic album Sky Yen. All in all, 16's a good example of how advanced Buscock's first album is. It's arguably the first punk song that's not in 4-4 for a start. Lyrically, the album contains many of Pete's finest expressions of the confusions of love. His lyrics famously avoided gender-based pronouns. This meant his words could apply to anyone and be sung by anyone, regardless of gender or sexuality, which was years ahead of its time. One thing that sets the album apart from the debut sets by The Clash and The Sex Pistols is its sonic template. Obviously, you can detect the American influence of Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley filtered through the Stooges and the New York Dolls on another music in a different kitchen as clearly as on The Clash and Nevermind The Bollocks. But only the Buscocks album has a sonic palette large enough to also incorporate echoes of the European sound of Kraftwerk, Noi and Can, via Bowie and Eno. Ironically, Buscock's sound was so perfect on their debut that it left them less scope for progression. The Clash's first album sounds like a demo in comparison, which at least gave them somewhere to go. Buscock's reached the pinnacle of production, if not songwriting, straight out of the blocks. Huge anticipated release of Buscock's second album on Friday the 22nd of September 1978 gave me and my fellow Buscock's fans at school a bit of a problem. The main worry was that if we left it till after school to buy, we might not have any badges left. Badges being a massive part of Buscock's appeal for us. So we actually risked the strap and snuck out at lunchtime. The album then retains an unbreachable place in my heart, a record that was more important to me at the time of its release than any other could ever hope to be. Well, there are any number of better albums, including another music in a different kitchen, if I'm honest. Getting my hands on Love Bites and its attendant badges remains the high point of musical appreciation in my life. How could any record top that? There's a good case to be made that Love Bites is artistically the most successful second album from the groups of Punk's first wave. The Clashes Give Them Enough Rope, Music for Pleasure by The Damned, and The Jam's This Is The Modern World have all been cited as examples of second album syndrome with some justification. Buscocks, on the other hand, actually leaned into the pressure by releasing their second album within six months of their debut, and it was neither half-baked nor hastily written. As we know, it contained their biggest hit, Ever Fallen In Love, which peaked at number 12 in the charts, a chart position which came with infinitely more prestige and obviously a lot more sales than it does now. The single was already part of the group's live set when it was released. It can be seen in the Badum Badum documentary as recorded at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in June. The group had also showcased Nothing Left at the Rock Against Racism gig in Alexandra Park on the 15th of July. With Late for the Train and Walking Distance, which had been heard in session for John Peel in April, four of the album's 11 tracks had already been presented to the world. These were all new songs arranged by the current Buscox lineup. He also had 16 again, which he'd written years earlier, so the group were definitely not short of material ahead of recording their new album. The two recording session was again conducted at Olympic with Martin Hannett, no one had any appetite for messing with the formula at this stage. It produced a set of songs that was almost as satisfying as its predecessor. 
One significant contributor to it being slightly less gratifying than another music was a glaring disconnect between Shelley's songs and Diggle's contribution, which would become even more pronounced on their next album. At first listen, the main difference here appears to be musical. Love is Lies features the first acoustic guitar on a Buscock song. But in retrospect, the inclusion of the line Find Myself a Girl is even more jarring, as it pointedly and deliberately blew in the face of Pete's non-gender specific language. Though arguably he had every right to do it, Diggle's determination to flout this unstated rule would only get worse over time, resulting in the inclusion of You Know You Can't Help It on a different kind of tension, the most embarrassing lyric in the whole of Buscock's canon. Ironically, the inclusion of the word girl doesn't stop Lois Lies being the nearest thing to a shell lyric Diggle ever produced. Elsewhere, Pete's lyrics are among his best. It's clear he, he, Howard DeVolto, Linda and Malcolm Garrett were still discussing artistic themes and metaphor, with real world obliquely references real life, the title of magazine's first album. Both Nostalgia and Sixteen Again deal with revisiting the past and offering resistance to the flow of time, and the speed with which Pete dispatches the lyric to Nostalgia shouldn't disguise its brilliance. ESP's use of repetition is immensely satisfying, and we get a nod to motoric and music concrete on Nothing Left. Even the tunes without lyrics are immensely catchy. Deves Garvey's walking distance is as bright and breezy as Late for the Train is dense and thoughtful. Hello there, welcome back um, to Temporary Fandoms. Um, joining me are, well, Nick, John and Paul. Um, almost a Beatles lineup, but not quite. Um, so we have listened to some descriptions over the, the, the first era almost of Buzzcock. Is it Buzzcocks or The Buzzcocks? I keep no, the. screwing up. No, The. No, the. Okay. Not to say it sometimes, though. You can say the Buzzcocks records or the Buzzcocks oeuvre, but you can't say Buzzcocks. I, say, I, can't, I couldn't even do it I, as an illustration. You can't put the in front of Buzzcocks. <laughs> I, still, I still call them the Pixies, even though I know, I know it's Pixies. Um, it's not the Ramones either, is it? Help myself. Really? There's no the, is it not? There's no the I, Ramones albums either. You're going, to tell me the ba- you're going to tell me that Australian band is just called The. Yeah. Next. <laughs> that was that was a hilarious joke. I'll put in some canned laughter next. Right. Please do. So we are going to start at the beginning with, well, I mean, is it, am, I, am I right, John? Was, was Spyro Scratch the first self-produced, like proper sort of punk ethos EP, or, or was there other stuff happening at the time? There was certainly other stuff happening at the time, but, but I think that... Uh... You know, other bands would probably debate that point, but I will say that the Buzzcocks EP. Notice how I'm using Buzz, oh, the, well the Buzzcocks EP, Spiral Scratch, really kind of lit a fire uh, behind a lot of things, and I think it aptly deserves credit for you know being the one that sort of sparked a revolution in a sense, showed a band could do it. Uh, kind of a low budget recording, but a brilliant, brilliant recording. Uh, you know, resonates today. And how did they sort of get together? I mean, what, what, I mean, were they one of those bands that were definitely at the Sex Pistols gig, like, like Mick Hucknall? Or <laughs> they what, put it on the Sex Pistols gig. They put it on. Did they? Yeah. I'm just asking the questions. I mean, you're, you're, you're the expert. <laughs> I think they put it on. I think uh, Richard Boone, who, who had a label called New Hormones and later worked at Rough Trade and, was a big sort of mover and shaker in the Manchester scene, might've played a role in it. And, um, 
but they they put it on. They got the they got the Sex Pistols up there. They opened uh, for them. If you hear any of the the really early Buzzcocks recordings, they're pretty shambolic live, considering you know how precise they were uh, shortly in the studio. And um, allegedly, they borrowed money, I believe, from Pete's father uh, to go record the EP in an afternoon. And and most of the songs were first takes. I think one of them one of them they did three takes on and. Uh, I think on the whole EP of four songs, there was one one guitar overdub. Okay, I'm, 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 so was I mean, if this this had come out, but what had come out by other bands before? I mean, if, was this in the, the the full first wave of of punk? Um, I mean, obviously, Sex Pistols were were, were there. Um, Susie and Susie and the Banshees were sort of forming and and doing their thing around about that time, but they were. The- Susie was a, it was a long time before they got a deal. Susie and the Banshees, but I mean, so Sex Pistols had signed to EMI, obviously, which is like the biggest label in the world, which was, was which was seen as kind of a sellout. I think a lot of people seem to tend to forget that. But uh, and then Clash signed to CBS. But the, what was interesting about Buscox was this independent thing, which was I mean, the word independence that was Chiswick and stiff, but they were. They were sort of record label insiders, people who'd worked on big labels and started their own label, and so they had contacts and they had some money. Whereas I think the big thing with Buzzcocks was it was, we have no idea how to start a label, but we're going to do it anyway. I think that's the big thing. And I, and I think another good point there is you've mentioned Stiff and Chiswick, and there were other labels, and, and they all had bands that you might call punk, I guess. Uh, there was the Buzzcocks at least when Howard Devoto was the singer, especially a uh, fierce intellectualism. But I think the most important thing, and I can't believe the great Paul Hanley hasn't mentioned this, is that it wasn't a label run out of London. It was, you know, up north in Manchester. Oh. Well, I mean, I could, I, I could, I could give you two hours on that. But I mean, <laughs> have you got a book? Yeah, yeah. Have, I mean, have you no, got a book on that? <laughs> it's really important to emphasize that Howard Devoto and Pete Shelley read a review of the Sex Pistols. And then went to see the Sex Pistols in High Wycombe. We basically drove down to London, found Malcolm McLaren's shop, said, where are the Pistols playing? Went to see them and then said, right. They didn't say, we're coming back next weekend to see them again. They said, we're bringing them to Manchester, which was a massive thing. And those two gigs at the Free Trade Hall, I know people wax lyrical and get a bit romantic about it, but it was a massively important thing. And they, they did that. And then they did Spiral Scratch, which is another massively important thing. So regardless of the music, which is obviously, we wouldn't be here talking if it wasn't absolutely wonderful, just that they did those, both those two things is enough to make Buzzcocks the, it, one of the most important bands ever to come out of Manchester, I think. And what was the reception from this EP? Uh, apparently, apparently the band were hoping that they'd sell out the pressing and it went on to sell... You know, into five figures within a year or two. So, you know, which were way beyond it. I can't remember if they did a thousand copies or 500 copies. I think they did a thousand to begin with. And then by the time they'd finished pressing it, they stopped pressing it in the end. They got to like 16,000 and stopped pressing it, mainly because I think they wanted to move on. Yeah. And so it was a huge, huge thing. And I think that there were, there had always, there had already been some. I guess you'd call them late running pub rock bands that had uh, a little bit uh, more punky feel or 
just something stranger going on. But I think that this was the first really big independent record to get really big reviews and sell that well that was just undeniably punk as punk was something new. You know, so uh, it hit a, it kind of uh, hit every base right at the right. A, a quick question for you, for you, for you, John, as someone who runs a record label, how hard must it have been, particularly when getting extra pressings back in the day, to be able to physically do this? I mean, if we if we just a, a band went let let let's do a self release. Oh my God, we need to press more things. How hard was it back then? Do you there know? was next to no real distribution um, for a record like that. There were you know, like jazz labels and stuff that had little distribution networks. But for a punk record, I mean, you're you're starting at square one. There isn't all the, the infrastructure that you need to really have successful. I think they must have sold as many of those just direct through mail order and whatnot. And then slowly you had a few distributors crop up that, that kind of jumped on, that maybe had been around and jumped on punk. And then later you had things. I don't, I don't know who distributed or anything, but I do know, at one point that that uh, I think Pete and Howard uh, in particular were just sick of sticking them in envelopes was a quote that that Howard had made you know and they were and they I can't remember what they sold for and it won't seem like anything today but it was like 75p maybe wow plus postage plus postage and packing yeah but you know that was pro- I don't know what that would have been 30p mm-hmm. I mean guessing I don't really know but it was really cheap and and um you know they they did they did all right on it, but it's not something you would have done for a living, I think. And so this, so the, so the success sort of caught them by surprise a little bit. Um, as with a lot of bands, they sort of have this this new thing. We're going to be big. Oh my god, we're actually big. Yeah, but and I think we actually have to. You have to remember that Buscox, I think, thought they thought it was going to last six months. Howard Devoto was it was a short run thing, and he was going back to finish his degree. So they thought, well, let's document it because otherwise we're, we're never going to know. That's the reason they did an EP because they thought it was going to be all over, and then they'd have no memento of it. So if they did, the, if they did a record, then you could always point to this record and say, "This is where we were in 1976." And I don't think anybody thought there was any kind of legs in it. And, and, and as you said about Howard Devoto's planning to go back to uni, he did leave. After this, right? They, he basically went, "Ah, punk's done. I'm, I'm, I'm back to college. This has no legs." So his quote was, uh, "You know, I'm just. I, he was just sick of. He already could see how it was going to become a repetitious thing, uh, the way it was at that time. And he he left and he formed a magazine, which uh, you can draw a line between the the Buzzcocks first EP and the the first Buzzcock or the first uh, magazine singles." But um, I think he could kind of see that it was going, going to be a limitation in some ways. He wasn't really wrong, except that um, when Magazine came out and a lot of other bands that weren't there, you know, the, the first punk bands, there was such a diversity of sounds and styles and ideas and ways of writing lyrics and stuff that um, in America, anyway, we considered all of that punk. So, you know, there was a way out. But yeah, I think they just thought it's just a laugh and a good time and we did some cool stuff and that's it okay well it's probably a good time i mean with howard devoted leaving probably a good time to talk about what they did afterwards moving in to their first proper album um, am i right in am i right uh john to find that that they they actually approached 
uh, Robert Lloyd, who was in what the prefects then. They did. Rob, oh. Rob, yeah, Rob's Rob, Rob had a, a bit of a link with just Manchester musicians in general. Um, he he's one of the few guys actually that, that Mark Smith from the Fall would occasionally review Nightingale's records in in one of the weekly papers and give them really good reviews. I mean, so they sort of had a bit of mutual admiration, I'd say. And uh, Rob also dated uh, Yvonne Paulette. Uh, from the fall, who was the after Una left, Yvonne took her place and played on Live at the Witch Trials and, and that album alone. And um, he also sold Mark Riley a guitar. Sorry, he also <laughs> sold Mark Riley a Fender Strat. And uh, Mark Riley, really? Yeah, he had this guitar and it was a lovely guitar and it had a case. And when you open the case in the you know the foam that you sit the guitar in, it had this is a prefix Sten gun written in felt tip. And when he when he when he, when he, yeah, when he sold it to Mark, he forgot to take the guitar strap off, and the guitar strap was signed by Link Ray. Oh wow! And he was gutted, but Mark gave it him back, obviously, because he's a nice guy. But yeah, Link Ray's autograph. I'm glad to hear that because I'm sure Robert Robert was just here a week ago recording an album with uh, a guy from Madness and this woman from Freakwater in America, and and he would probably still be complaining about losing his Link Ray signed <laughs> guitar strap. <laughs> Had Mark not given it back, so that's I'm glad to have been spared that. But um, yeah. but yeah, Pete Pete called up Rob and said, you know, uh, what because of course the Prefects, Rob's band before the Nightingales had played on the White Riot tour, where the Clash and Subway Sect and Buzzcocks did some gigs, and the Slits were on a few in the Jam, and uh, so they knew each other. And the Prefects were very anti record industry; they never actually recorded anything except for two Peel sessions. Uh, they never went into the studio and, and, um, Pete called Rob and said, come on up to Manchester and be our singer. And for whatever reason, Rob declined. And so what, and so obviously, I mean, history has told what happened, but, but what did happen, Paul? I mean, how did they decide to just basically do it themselves? Well, I think it would have been, I mean, with the greatest respect to Rob, who I think is a genius, it would have been a travesty if Pete Shelley hadn't become a singer songwriter at some point in his life it would have been it would have been such a loss because he was he was writing so some of the stuff on Buscock's albums he'd written 5 years before when he was 15 and 16 and so it was it was with hindsight it's completely obvious that Pete should have been the singer i think and i for me i mean as much as i love spiral scratch i don't think it's i don't think they really became what i'd call Buscock's until Pete took over on vocals they were a different band, really. I couldn't agree with that more. I, that's absolutely the case. I, mean, I think Pete was just a fantastic singer, wrote fantastic songs, but he was the best possible singer for the songs that he wrote. Um, Robert certainly wasn't and isn't a musician. He doesn't play anything, really. So uh, it's it's strange to me that that it was even kind of a conversation about that because, as as Paul says, uh, there are a lot of Buzzcock songs that... that uh, Pete had written when he was in, back in a band called Jet Sever. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Jet Sever, yeah. And um, he was still using songs he'd written long before the Buzzcocks when he entered his solo career as well. And I, I just don't think anybody ever sung those songs, uh, has ever sung those songs as well as Pete did. And he sure know, um, how, he sure it- know how to write them. Is there an element to this of, and I made some notes, which I was going to cover later, but it's a good point to do it now. Um, a lot of Buzzcock's most 
well-known and most endearing stuff. They're basically love pop songs. Yeah, they're punk pop songs, but they're they're love songs. Yeah, there's there's a fragility about that. And if you're the person singing that and you wrote that, I think that comes across with more I don't know, honesty and authenticity rather than, oh, I wrote, uh, I wrote you some words, Rob. Uh, it's a love song about, or about how I felt or about this. Um, please give it some emotion. <laughs> I, I think um, yeah. what's nice about Pete's lyrics is that he, he really wrote conventional pop songs and somehow mustered up these hooks that were as good as any ever done before, but most of them didn't seem to have ever been done before. And he also... Most of his songs had a little bit of a lyrical twist, and I just I'm thinking of that of lipstick. You know, does the lipstick from your lipstick on my face? You couldn't have gotten away with that in the '60s, let's say. You know, and he just pushed it enough uh, to really do something new, but not so much that it alienated anybody with a good ear. Um, okay. So as we progress, at some point, I'm going to mention a song that I think is on an album, and you're going to tell me it was a single that wasn't on an album. So I've just sort of bracketed things yeah, in sort of periods. Singles go instead of you're covered. You're covered. You can't, you can't oh, lose. perfect. Well, if I mention something now, and, and, and it's not on an album, it'll be covered later. But this was around about this, around this time was, what, Orgasm Addicts, What Do I Get? That, that was this year. That was the, those were the next, uh, that was the first single after... Yeah. after spiral scratch yeah okay um and this is when you start to get what well buzzcock sound um nick hello because you because you are here <laughs> i'm going to ask you musically musically what how did you find well spiral scratch and uh the first album oh, I, I love them i mean this is probably my, my favorite bit of the buzzcocks sorry i'm gonna use the the i'm gonna can't help it um, but i mean but What's amazing is that the, the quality of that is carried on through all the albums for the first wave. It's it's really quite a remarkable run of records. Um, but also, like just talking about uh, Shelley as a, as a songwriter, uh, it's a, I, it's I think it's an amazing combination that they've got that kind of classic punk sneeriness, and yet there's a vulnerability at the same time. And I I struggle to think of other similar acts who have that um that combination so perfectly and that's what makes them such sweet pop songs in a way as well yeah i think this is for me there's a what comes across is the sound of teenage boy yes <laughs> like it, it, you know like there's that sort of arrogance and vulnerability and love and, 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 and loss and angst and whatnot uh all in a sort of wiry ball of energy that's really difficult to like do it, i think like- i think it's i think it's easy to feel like that yeah, yeah, it's very, very difficult to articulate that in a song, and I think, and I think it's very, it's very difficult to do that without turning to cliche, you know. Yes, and and, yeah. and all of all of Pete's stuff, at least the first, you know, fifty songs or so, just sounded so fresh. Yeah, and I think I was just going to say the thing you've got to always remember about Pete Shelley is, is his bisexuality was a massive, massive part of who he was. But it wasn't a gimmick. It wasn't like he wasn't flamboyant in the way that Bowie was. I'm not, I don't, I'm not, not, I'm not criticizing Bowie or Elton John or whoever. It was very brave of them to be who they were. But with Pete Shelley, what you saw was what you got. And he was his lyrics were sexually ambiguous. It could be about a girl. It could be about a boy. His life was that way, as he famously said, "You don't fall in love with genitals." But it was a it was an incredibly brave thing to do in Manchester in 1976 to be that way. To what you know, 
and, you know, you could get your head kicked in. And he wasn't going home in a limousine. He was getting on the bus in Piccadilly. And it, But I, th- I think it, it's really important to say, because it was a big thing then that he was gay. And it was a big thing in a different way from when Bowie said he was gay, because he was, he was you know, with, a, with the best one in the world, he was kind of sequestered away from... Uh, Every day, whereas Pete Shelley was getting on the bus, having said that in the in the enemy. Um, actually, so so a question about that um, to you, Paul. I mean, we spoke before on one of our other pods. I'm not going to get into it now, and we briefly mentioned the idea of punk audiences. At some point, there was this sort of thuggish, fascist group that would started to turn up and then sort of disappear yeah. away. How how would this have been? Um, taken on board, I guess, or how would this have been um, accepted by that group? You know? Well, yeah, I think what what how society moves on is you look at someone and you say, well, I don't like gays, but Pete Shelley's great, you know. So then you start to question, I think. You start saying, what am I talking about, you know? It's when you see real people who are brave enough to say, this is who I am, and if you don't like it, you can fuck off. Um, you start to question your attitudes and you start thinking, well, I'm the one in the wrong, I think. And, it, and I, I can't overemphasize how important that was for people to be, a, to be a, a, an everyday person who, by the way, I'm gay and if you don't like it, I don't care. It was, it was, it was an amazing thing. He wasn't part of his, he wasn't a rock star in that way and he wasn't flamboyant and he wasn't where, you know, he wasn't glitter and everything else. He was, you know, it, it, it's an amazing thing he did and, You've got uh, all his songs reflected it. You know, you can't listen to a Pete Shelley song and think he's singing about a girl here, he's singing about a boy here, he's singing about a girl in love with a boy, boy in love with a girl, girl in love with a girl. You don't know. It's 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 just saying whoever you are, this song can mean something to you. Um. Yeah. No. Okay. Um. John. Um. So, how was this received? I mean, because now this is this is Buzzcocks, Buzzcocks, rather than the sort of the early iteration. Well. You know, uh, there are people like, you know, Mark Perry from Alternative TV and, and the fanzine Sniff and Glue who said, you know, oh, Punk died the, the day that The Clash signed to CBS. And you didn't hear as much about uh, the Buzzcocks uh, signing to United Artists, uh, despite the fact that they really had, you know, they're probably the first punk band with true punk independent credibility by virtue of having put out Spiral Scratch. It didn't seem to cause as much of a fuss at least that I ever came across, Paul, Paul might have a better idea there. Um, I think that uh, the f- if you look at the first, and we're kind of going a little out of chronology here, but if you look at the first uh, Buzzcock single uh, after Spiral Scratch, it was um, Orgasm Addict and, and Oh Shit, wasn't it? And you can hear Devoto still on those songs, even though he's not on those songs. You know, Pete Shelley maybe hadn't quite found his voice on those two. And I also think that it was a little bit of a provocation to United Artists to have uh, the first single be something that was, you know, still I, a little crude in a way. I think it was a it was a bargaining chip. They used Orgasmatic because well, the story goes that when they did Spiral Scraps, they all picked a song and they voted on it. And so they had four songs that won the vote and the next song was Orgasmatic. So that was going to be the next single. The, the second EP on New Hormones was going to be the Orgasmatic EP. So, but then obviously that didn't happen for various reasons. But um, they went to record companies and said, "We it, 
if you want to sign us, by the way, our first single is going to be a song about a sex addict, and it's going to be called Orgasm Addict. And if you don't like that and you don't want to do that, well, we're not going to sign to you. So, so they were democratic in the fact that as a as a band, they got to vote on what the single was going to be. Yeah, amazing. Did did that happen in the fall? No. <laughs> They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's probably really only true for the for the first EP because, uh, as Paul says, you know this was going to be a memento of what we did, you know, that summer or what have you. And I don't think that they were really considering that it would last. And so it was fair. There were four of them. Each got to pick on a song, and and I think that three of the songs are amazingly strong. Uh, I think "Friends of Mine" is a little weaker than the other three, but you know, still a great song. Mm-hmm. And they probably picked the best songs if you've heard uh, Time's Up. Yeah, they did, yeah. Yeah, so, okay. Um, so there's a couple of great singles. We've got a band becoming the band they become. And now we're going to move on to, well, an album, but also a single that if you look back in the history of popular music, I can't find another song that is as amazing as Ever Fallen in Love. I'm not talking about the Fine Young Cannibals version later. Um, it's there's there's just this wonderful pop song that's fiery and angular and catchy as fuck, and it's really short. Regular listeners will know that I love a short song. Um, it's really short, great guitars, um, and then that takes us into Love Bites. Which is what? Seventy eight. You mean seventy eight now? Six months. Six months between the first album and the second album. Yeah. God, bands used to do that all the time, didn't they? Like, we've got three albums out within the space of a year and a half, and now Radiohead do one every ten years. I said doing this process, like going through discographies, like really rams at home the the change in how bands work and and the rate at which albums are put out. I think, I think, Love Bites is the second album of of if you're talking about your. Entry level punk band, so you're talking about Sex Pistols, Clash, The Damned. All their second albums, so when you can't really count uh, uh, the Great Rock and Roll Swindle because it's not really a second album. But if you look at um, Music for Pleasure by The Damned, give them enough rope. Uh, they're not a part. The second albums are pretty crap, really. They're not a mm-hmm. patch on the first album. The, 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 it was that second album syndrome, which I don't think Buzzcocks ever suffered from. Somehow, I don't know how, no. but and they did it within six months of the first one. But do you, do you think do you think it is a sorry John do you think it is a thing of obviously a lot of the time second album syndrome is because a band has spent years and years with I don't know ten songs they get those ten songs down for their first album and then they've got to go and write some more whereas Buzzcocks that first album almost was it was not like they'd built this up over a long period of time they'd been touring for two or three years and they got this album out and then they had to go back and do another one. They were starting to write their songs and become that band, and almost uh, these two albums are sort of siblings, yeah. kind of. Yeah. yeah, I'd agree with that. Pete Shelley did have a backlog of songs, which I think makes him fairly unique amongst the the punk performers that that Paul's mentioned. And you know, you could expand that. I think the second Susie and the Banshees record wasn't as good, and the second Alternative TV or Generation X album wasn't as good. That's true of all of them. And I, but I think that. Pete had a lot of songs uh, from the get-go, and and there are quite a lot of Jets of Air songs on the uh, on the second album. Oh yeah, there's an interesting fact: sixteen again was written before sixteen. Exactly. Yeah, 
Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's either very prescient or very weird. <laughs> yeah, for those who don't know, 16 was on the first album and 16 again was on the second album. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I think that's true. And, uh, I, you know, I think that Pete was also the sort of guy that for a number of years there, um, and I, re- I read a quote by him once where he said, you know, I wake up, I have my orange juice and I write a, a pop song. You know, I think it just kind of, those, <laughs> those songs seems to have just fallen out of him. And if you've heard, yeah. if ever, there are some bootlegs around where uh, he's playing acoustic guitar versions of, of, of songs from the second album, mostly. And it just, you just could tell they were fully formed. All the ideas were there, you know, everything, the bass, the drums, the additional guitar, all just seemed to fall right into place when he recorded them. But it, it, there, I don't think there was a lot of, in the studio arrangement of those songs. I think they had that mostly worked out before they went in. But I'm also right in thinking, I mean, we're, we're sort of, you know, there's a lot of love for, for Pete Shelley, but um, also Steve Diggle wrote quite a lot of the songs, didn't he? Not for the first, for the first two albums, he had, he had one song on each. Okay. And, okay. and I, I, I think the, the most generous person in the world would, well, Possibly not Steve Diggle, but we'll get onto that, I'm sure, at some point. But <laughs> Autonomy, which is on the first album, is that's credited to Steve Diggle. It's, okay. It's, it's still very Shelley, I think. Shelley plays the – he sings half the vocal and he plays the guitar solo. And then on the second album oh. is Love is Lies, which is sort of like an acoustic guitar. And, and it's not a bad tune, but it's you know it feels like something different than, than Pete Shelley's songs. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, do we think? I mean, if this 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 second album and or what? So did uh, Ever Falling in Love come out before the album yeah. came out, or was it a month? Yeah. I think. Um, do do what bands do we th- we talk about legacy quite a lot here? I mean, for me, um, if I'm trying to think of another song that I could even bracket in a sort of similar vein stylistically, I'm waiting till I know maybe White Stripes ever fought, uh, fell in love with a girl. You know, so that sort of two minute guitar love pop um what legacy from their early stuff can we see already starting to take shape like with with susan the banshees you could start to see bands they were influencing as they sort of became the band that they became were buzzcocks already influencing stuff uh, i i think yeah. definitely the undertones, obviously. yeah the, mm-hmm. that's what exactly what i was going to say too the undertones were were big buzzcocks fans and i think between those two in the Ramones, you have all of what today would be called pop punk. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just just taken from them, reduced it to more of a formula. Mm-hmm. You know, cut out some of their really. I, mean, I don't think you can underestimate the influence Pete Shelley had on Morrissey either. I think Morrissey became got the freedom to be the kind of character he is. Who is very, you know, Pete Shelley is a like a template for what Morrissey. Did later on in a lot of ways, you know. I think, but the good, the good Morrissey stuff, not the bad <laughs> Morrissey stuff. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, whether it's good or bad, yeah. But I, I think that um, there's just so much. It's one of those things where I remember buying the Buzzcocks records in America when I was a you know kid as they came out, and uh, you know, 14 years old, and they were just mind-blowingly different from anything I'd ever heard. And today. I think if you're a kid and you pick those records up, you, you might recognize the quality, but there's so many references to those records in the you know, 40 odd years since that they don't maybe sound as startling as they did, although they're, they're every bit as good. Were they, they're still timeless. 
were they easy to pick up in the US at that time? Were they released at roughly the same time? They no, they were the 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 first two albums only were available as imports until uh-huh. like twenty years ago or something. But you could you know I could get them as imports and uh, and it was a big deal when Singles Going Steady came out because you could get all those the all the non LP stuff which you know was too expensive. A single in in Chicago where I lived was uh, like three dollars for a UK import single in nineteen eighty. I mean that'd be like fifteen wow. bucks now. So there was no way you were going to buy that. And then when Singles Going Steady came out, it was brilliant because it was eight. I, I, I am going to jump in here and say we are going to talk about Singles Going yeah, Steady sorry. slightly later on. No, it, um, it, it was hard to get that stuff, though. But you could get it. Uh, Paul, were you, were you into them from day one? No, no. I mean, words. I'll tell you, I, I, my brother, Steve, and Mark Riley brought home uh, another music in a different kitchen the day, the day it came out. They had this um, event at Virgin Records in Manchester where they did this balloon release. And if you found the balloon, you got to you could write off and get a poster or something. So they went down to that, but they brought it home, and I they brought it home and played it. And it wasn't the thing about I try and get across about Buscocks. It wasn't just the music. I think the, it's the whole Malcolm Garrett thing. The records looked amazing. And everything, you know, so, and they had badges. And it was like a, the aesthetics of Buzzcocks was just fabulous. Malcolm Gallup was like the fifth Buzzcock for me. Uh, and the, to a point where the badges were almost as important as the music. Um, we brought home this package and it was, so what you have to know about Buzzcocks records is that their singles were two colour. So Organomatic was yellow and blue. What do I get was light green, dark green. I Don't Mind was cream and brown. And then the albums were three colours. So another music in different kitchen was silver, black, and orange. Wow. I mean, this is how anal <laughs> I am about it. Um, Love Bites was <laughs> red, white, and blue. And Love Bites, uh, another uh, another music had a square on the front. Uh, Love Bites had a circle, and a different kind of tension had a triangle. And it was just a beautiful thing. And there was something to look at. You know, I mean, I know people wax, you know, people get very. Uh, Adel about uh, albums and looking at the sleeve on the bus on the way home, but that's exactly what I did. And it was a, it, and it came with a carrier bag. The first Buscox album it came in a silver carrier bag with product written on it. They were just like leaning into this whole marketing thing, and it was just astounding for me. And the music was equal to all of that. You could look at this and think, "Lord God, that looks amazing." But I bet yeah. the record shit, but the record was so good. <laughs> I mean, I was only a kid; I was only fourteen. Yeah, and when the other thing is that they had the, the the brilliant producer for them at the time. So you know Malcolm Garrett, yeah. and, and I can't agree with Paul Moore. That that's that's probably just the best looking run of singles by any band ever. You really, yeah. And they they sounded amazing. And and Martin Martin Hannett, who produced all the early stuff from Spiral Scratch to no no, you, you got you got there's two Martins. There's Martin Hannett in Spiral Scratch and Martin Russian. When they signed to was Martin Russian, the to... one who went by Martin Zero. No, that's Martin Hannett. So yeah, he's Martin he's, Martin. but Martin Russian didn't do anything until after a different kind of tension. No, no, you get you're getting well mixed up. Uh, Martin Hannett, uh, uh, Martin Hannett did Spiral Scratch. Then they had Martin Russian. There's too many Martins. Martin Russian did the mm. three albums, <laughs> and then when they did the three singles, they got Martin Hannett back again. So yeah, apologies for that, but. But the other thing about Martin 
Uh, Martin. Uh, <laughs> a Martin. One of the Martins. <laughs> but just say Martin. Is, is that he also <laughs> co-wrote some songs with Pete Shelley that appeared on those Buzzcocks? Uh, I I didn't find that out till a lot later. The how much of a collaboration it was between Pete Shelley and Martin Russian. I I I found out later that Martin Russian was doing backing vocals and stuff, which astounded me. I mean, I, I'm talking mm. about I found that out within the last six months. I never knew yeah. that. Oh well, see, because he didn't use his real name on the on the co-writes. He used uh, Dial. I don't know what the first name was, but you'll see a few songs that are credited to Shelley slash Dial. And I hate I, I, I hate to disabuse you again. <laughs> Alan Dial. Oh my God! Sorry. <laughs> seriously. Alan Dial is Richard Boone. Richard Boone. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. more. That's see. That's interesting too, because I, I, you know, I'm thinking about they had, you know, the producer. Malcolm Garrett and Richard Boone, who's kind and of Richard the, Boone, yeah, they did. I mean, yeah, I mean Richard Boone's a very clever guy, wasn't he? He was. It was yeah. a perfect package, and also, you know, this is a little bit of an aside, but during this time, uh, I think roundabout after the first album, Pete Shelley started Groovy Records, and he released a, a few really, yes. really oddball things. Sally Tim's from the Mekons' first uh, album under the name Sally's Sally. Smith and her musicians, Tim's Backwards, which is just her singing this chant for two sides of an album, and the yeah. Tiller Boys, and uh, what else did we have there? Tiller Boys, yeah. The Tiller Boys. And you know, so Pete was doing these really avant-garde records with Richard Boone, I believe, kind of financing and probably doing a lot of the, yeah. the logistics. And then they just had great-looking records, great-sounding records, you know, and that, that team was fantastic. I always thought, I always thought it was a shame that Pete never found a way to really successfully marry his love of electronics with Buscocks, really, because Buscocks were that tightly defined. It was very difficult. I mean, we'll get onto that with some of the later albums where they try and break the mould of what Buscocks sounded, because it's very... Well, well let's, let's take this moment purely because I'm, I'm also very conscious of time. We've got a lot to get through, and we'll, get back, we'll definitely come back to the electronic stuff later. Um, the listener... Dear listener, you're now going to get back to be talked through a few more albums and then you come back to, well, what I'm now going to call Martins Correcting Martins About Martins <laughs> and we'll be back, well, shortly. Which brings us to the third album, A Different Kind of Tension, which is an album of two distinct halves. Paradise works fantastically as this opening burst of energy is a great way to kick off the album. Three of the next four songs are Diggles. I mean, none of them are spectacular, although their shared simple rock sensibility balances out Shelley's more cerebral songs. But you know you can't help it does lose points for weak lyrics. Stuck in the middle of this Diggle mini-album is one of Shelley's greatest songs. You say you don't love me. It's deceptive. There's not a chorus in any traditional sense. And its three stanzas mirror one another in describing the gradual process of letting love go. It's optimistic only in describing a slight lessening of pain. That little bit of upbeat is likely why it didn't end up on the more troubled second side. Shelley's last song on the first side, Raison d'etre, is a it's a bit oblique, and hints at some form of personal confusion. The second side is all Shelley. A bit experimental, 
and one of the most perfect album sides in punk. Although it is obscured by virtue of every song dealing with confusion or despair. The album's title track is a paranoid rant with a music-only chorus, I use the term loosely, which serves to release the tension that builds up over the verses, which are composed of pairs of contradictory commands intoned in robotic fashion. Be satisfied, be envious, over a pounding backing track. The next track, I believe, is the conceptual masterpiece of the album, a seven-minute repost to the previous tune with a somewhat more conventional structure of two distinct verse and one-line shouted chorus. There is no love in this world anymore. Which does happen to belie the other lines in which Shelley lists the things he does believe in. In the early 90s, my late teens, I first got into punk, and having arrived long after the event, I bought the year zero myths of the genre wholesale. It was only years later that I learned about what else was going on in the 1970s, and understood that the best of these bands had been listening to Krautrock and Glam, Bowie or Can, rather than being birthed fully formed with no antecedents. Another such myth was that punk bands were only ever singles bands. Albums were a bourgeois indulgence, a sort of thing that Genesis or Pink Floyd might do. Not so the greatest punk bands. It is for this reason that the only Buzzcocks album I ever owned was Singles Going Steady. Exhibit A in the argument that Buzzcocks were a singles band, possibly punk's greatest. Case closed. Except, of course, I hadn't heard the albums. And as you've by now heard, there are incredibly strong counter-arguments available for anyone who wishes to make them. Never mind. I'm here to tell you about an extraordinary Buzzcocks album, and honestly, even if you acknowledge the greatness of their albums, you're still in the presence of their finest work. Orgasm Addict. Ever fallen in love? What do I get? Everybody's happy nowadays. That's just the highlights from Side A. First released by IRS in the US in 1979 to coincide with their first tour of North America, it proved so popular that it was eventually given a UK release in 1981, following the band's first split. Subsequent re-releases have heaped on further singles, a practice I'm usually fairly sceptical about, but in this case it just expands the proof that Shelley was one of the greatest songwriters of his generation. That Steve Diggle wasn't half bad either. Temporary Fandoms doesn't normally listen to compilations, but just as Spiral Scratch was one of the most important debut EPs in the story of punk, Singles Going Steady deserves a special mention, especially because many of these extraordinary singles did not appear on the original albums. Well, I've mentioned it now, so we can return to our normal trudge through the studio albums. Hello there, welcome back. Um, we're working our way through Buzzcocks, brackets, not the, closed brackets. Um, and we're in the second part of their, their studio albums, I guess, and we're on to 1979's A Different Kind of Tension. Um, talking about the singles for a second before I go to everyone else, this is one of those times where I'd heard the, the cover version before I heard the actual original version for me everyone everybody's uh everybody's happy ah tongue tied everybody's happy nowadays i'd heard the car to the unstoppable sex machine version and knew that really really well um and did had no idea who it was i knew it was a cover because it was a b-side of the Carter track which meant it was always going to be a cover um i think this album's great um it's it's there's there's a couple of longer songs here, like was, was I think that was uh, seven seven minutes or so for like the I, title I, track. I believe. Oh, oh difficult. No, that, uh, we talk. We're talking about 
a different kind of tension now the album yeah yes the really long song is i believe which is the last song on the album which was a single mm. i think i think it was a single in america i think not a single it was a, it was the edited b side of a single i believe they i don't think we got the full 7 minute version Mm. Oh, because that would have made the fifteen dollars worthwhile then. If you got a, a... <laughs> well, no, but because this record actually did come out in America, this album. So uh, for a lot of people, it was a big thing, and and um, it doesn't sound that incredible. But bear in mind, even then, America was two hundred and fifty million people, and the album actually made the charts. And by charts, I mean the top two hundred. But that's kind of what counted then. And I think it got up to like one eighty nine or some number, and that was really impressive for a. Punky album of, but I'm guessing still in America you'd only really have heard it sort of left of the dial, so, so, so to speak. We didn't really have a left of the dial, so you know, you, and there wasn't really college radio then, so you, I, I, I never heard it on the radio. I mean, it would have been really shocking if you had, but it did get some promotion, and it was on IRS Records in America, um, and all they signed were, well, for the most part, all they signed were were British punk bands that they thought had a commercial future so that's where that was coming who else did they sign before they put out a they put out a stranglers album <laughs> and they put out uh well, it's the fall the fall the first fall the album. fall yeah the first the first fall right. album live of the witch trials slightly different track arrangement and a, a different front cover but yeah, yeah live the witch trials and um and then they kind of hit things like wall of voodoo who are an american band and you know they that then they had uh, the Go-Go's, you know, they, they sort of got into it just in time to glide into the really commercial aspect of of kind of post-new post, post new wave pop music. And I, th- I think they were a kind of a lot. The IRS were amazing. Um, well, I was going to be a right name drop here. But I was speaking to Steve Albini, and he was saying that IRS was like, this is, this is the music you should be listening to. As a young American who's interested in... British music, IRS were kind of hoovering everything up and presenting it to an American audience, I think. So, I mean, it was mild. I've, I've, yeah, and Steve, Steve's a little bit older than me, and and yeah, that's definitely the thing. They were probably the first American label that had any, that had major label distribution. It was distributed through A&M. And uh, so you could find those records even in, you know, a Kmart in, you know, Huntingburg, Indiana. Uh, they might not yeah. have sold there, but eventually they got returned and sent back to places like Chicago or <laughs> New York. That's exactly that's exactly what he said. If you waited six months, you could get these IRS albums for quite cheap because they didn't sell. So that was his musical education was IRS returns. Well, and see, and, and see, Steve's from Missoula, Montana, which is like the last place yeah. you're going to find a a Fall or Buzzcocks record or something like that in the the late seventies, early eighties. But yeah, they did get kind of remaindered, and you could you could pick them up, and um, yeah, so that's that's very true. So this brought the Buzzcocks to a different kind of attention in America. Uh, a lot of people. Oh, that's a very good pun, that a different kind of attention. Thank that's you. I spent all night working excellent. on that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, but uh, you know the the sound the d- sad thing of it is aside from um, you say you don't love me, which is I think one of the top five Pete Shelley songs ever. Uh, and that was the A side of the single. The single didn't matter much. And you could tell that there were tensions within the band, not to make another tension pun. But yeah, yeah. I think they're massive. Yeah. I think Shelley's songs on that are great, but Steve Diggle's songs, I mean, I think if you're talking about a blot on their copybook, uh, uh, you know you can't help it. It's got to be 
possibly my most hated Buzzcock song ever because it was it flew in the face of everything because it it talks about having sex with a girl and um, explicitly it's an embarrassment you know I don't think Mad Mad Judy was much better either that wasn't great great and then you've got um, sitting around at home which is not bad but it's about how hard it is to be a successful rock star with nothing to do during the day so I don't think it's garnering much sympathy from your average oh, person so is that so and this is the third I've talked before on this pod about how often third album a lot of bands they, they, they can't talk about living you know growing up or being on the streets or, or their normal life anymore because they're now successful and often by the third album there's a song about being in a band yeah um yeah you, know, you got artists like jeffrey lewis don't take the record label take you out for lunch um you know people just go oh now we're in a band i could uh, my life's still the same right this is yeah. everyone everyone feels like this and it's interesting that on their third album there's a being in a band at the song yeah. but i mean what rescues for me a different kind of tension is and it's it's not a good thing it's pete shelley was having a massive ex- existential crisis i think and questioning who he was. Was this when he was take? Was this when he was take? When he there's a lot of uh, LSD. There is a lot of drugs and, and a lot of um, you know, a lot of he didn't know where the hell he was. I mean, you can tell by some, you know, I don't know what to do in my life. You know, you can tell he he was lost, but he did make some amazing songs out of it. You know, and I think yeah, we'll talk about it when we get to the singles one, two, three. But he ended up massively depressed, I think, but. I think his songs on a different kind of tension are absolutely amazing. I think they're amongst the best things he ever wrote. If you look at, I, I, we've mentioned I Believe and I Don't Know What to Do in My Life and, you know, um, Different Kind of Tension. I think they're just incredible songs. And Money, Money is an amazing song. I mean, it's not about money, uh, but uh, mm. it's but he was reaching the sort of zenith of his songwriting and having to give Steve Diggle three songs on an album, which... It was kind of a shame in a way because it's a bit unfair because Steve Diggle became a, a fairly decent songwriter a bit later on, but he got um, parity in songwriting too early, I I think, personally. Mm. But, you know, I think I think one of the things was Steve Diggle could knock a song out every five minutes, whereas I think Pete, the longer you go on through Buzzcocks, I think Pete Shelley struggled more to write. So they, they became so that they ended up so they were writing as many as each other. but. We'll talk about that later on about the whether who's the better songwriter, but uh, I don't think that'll take very long. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I think if you could have if you could have raised the Pete, the Steve Diggle songs, which is a shit. It's not fair. That's really unfair because Steve Diggle songs are perfectly fine. They're perfectly serviceable. But if you could have a different kind of attention without the three uh, Steve Diggle songs, it would be a, a, a the equal of the other two albums for me. Which is a personal opinion, and it's probably unfair. And I think another point here is you're talking about, you know, Pete never being able to marry uh, electronics to his songwriting in quite a satisfying way. And I think that if you listen to this record right after the first two, Pete's songs and only Pete's songs uh, are very differently written. You know, he, he's, he wasn't going so much for these really long, great melodic riffs. You know, there's a lot of the stuff like I Believe and Raison d'Etre that's quite staccato. And you can almost sense... In his mind, maybe that you know he's just thinking about how this would sound uh, with a, a very different kind of groove to it. And around this time, he also did the he did the liner notes on on a, a can reissue, oh, um, yeah. which uh, which says a lot about kind of you know where he was coming from. And I think that fits in very nicely with this record. Some of those songs where 
you know, they're just, he's got one singular, really simple, but brilliant musical idea. And he just stretches it out to, uh, almost absurd, to, to an absurd, absurd extent, yeah. except it works. Yeah. I mean, like it's that, that different kind of tension, the song, it's just two bits and it just goes round and round and round. And, 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 you think he's, he's got to finish now, and it just goes, and it, until you, bec- it becomes like an out of body experience. It's because it, it, it's all just two opposing ideas, and they get closer and closer together. To it, until in the end, there's, t- there's a double tap vocal, and he's saying yes on one side and no on the other, and he's clearly lost, you know. But again, like 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 we said earlier about being articulate, what being able to articulate what it is to be a young man, and lo- being able to articulate what it was to be. 24 and lost and not know it. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. It's, it might be easy to be, but for him, the way he did it on that album is amazing. And it's, I don't think he ever bettered it, I don't think. And I'll tell you another thing that's really interesting about it is that uh, when he did his first solo album, Homo Sapien, there are three or four songs on there that are old Jets of Air songs that would have been great yeah. Buzzcock songs. And what's interesting that to me is that on A Different Kind of Tension, rather than just you know, yanking out some of these old great pop songs and tarting them up for the Buzzcocks, he went with what he was going through at that time, which is sort of a breakdown and a lot yeah. of, you know, issues. Uh, and then, you know, he, but, he, but he could have just faked his way through this quite easily and didn't. It, it's, interesting, it's interesting that round about the time he's going through this, we also get possibly their first disjointed album. And obviously we've, we've looked at some of the reasons why with the different sort of songwriting uh, credits. Um, Nick... Just because I'm, I just want to keep make sure you're awake. I'm not coming to you for for, for background information, but um, opinions on, on musically. Oh, where is this? I mean, for me, this still fits with the first few albums. Yeah, totally. Although, um, yeah, there is a couple of mm-hmm, misbeats, but it is also it's sounding a little different. Well, like, I mean, it's um, interesting, and, and I guess this is I'm going to be talking about all these three albums a little bit here, but that um, for a band that most people would say. They, they think of them as great three-minute pop songs, but they wrote great long songs as well. And that's a facet of the Buzzcocks I never would have known about if I hadn't been through this process of listening to all the albums. But, you know, on, on another music, you had Moving Away from the Pulse Beat. On Love Bites, you've got um, Late for the Train. I love those tracks. Almost feels a bit bloody-minded mm. to say that they're among my favorite Buzzcocks songs because they're not, that they're atypical. Um and so again, on on a different kind of tension, you've got, I believe, you've got these longer songs that are, you know, really strong. And- well, we've we've established on this pod before that I love a good, I I, I generally love a short song, and you do love a, a long one, which is probably <laughs> which why we rule. disagree on can. <laughs> um, okay, well, it, you mentioned the idea of the three minute pop song. It's probably a good time to go into this now. There's always a debate with bands that have been around for, 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 for some bands who have been around for a while, whether they're a singles band or an album band. Our last episode, when we had the Punk Girl Diaries um, on talking about Susie and the Banshees, there was a discussion of whether they're a singles band or whether or not they're, they're an albums band. And lots of people got involved on Twitter sort of going one way or the other. Um, we're now looking at singles going steady, which was described as one of the top 20 albums of the 70s for a singles compilation mm-hmm. and some were album singles some were not this is where i've been getting confused as of which is which is not and which is wasn't um i'm gonna go to paul paul when when did this compilation come out and what was new for people i mean obviously for john it was all the stuff he couldn't get because yeah. it was 
35 bucks a, a, a pop. It, well, that's why it was, it, was, it was created for the American market. So they were doing the first tour of America in 1979, I believe. So what they did was they hoovered up all the singles from Orgasm Addict up till um, You Say You Don't Love Me and the B-sides and put them on one album. So you had side one was all the A-sides, side two was all the B-sides. And it was obviously the only way you could get these these songs in America. And I I I I could argue with myself. I could give myself an hour's argument about whether Buscocks are a singles band or an album band based on because singles going steady is just wonderful. I mean, as it, there's, there isn't a a wrong note on it. I don't think. Uh, I don't think there's any song you could say, oh, that's, that's not very good. At all, it's just wonderful, and the B sides are as good as the A sides for me. Uh, and it's a it's a, a wonderful document, but I love Buzzcocks albums as well. So it, as I say, it was it was done to Hoover up everything of the American market, and then everyone in Britain thought, well, "I wish I had that album," you know, because and then they released it in England as well, and then they released it later on with the three singles that they released post. A different kind of tension, which then became an even better album, in my opinion. But we'll probably get onto those three, those six tracks later on. Um, but if I listen to Singles Going Steady, Buscocks are a singles album. If I listen to the albums, they're an album album. So I can't really uh, album band. <laughs> so I can't really, I can't really give you an answer on that. <laughs> You're asking the wrong person. Um, <laughs> so, John, I'm not going to ask you the same question. But was this the first time you got to hear a lot of the singles? Uh, pretty, yeah, most of them. I mean, I, you know, I meet somebody that had a single. I actually had a friend from named Sophie who moved to my town outside Chicago from Manchester, and she had a lot of Buzzcock singles. So that was just a weird, happy thing because she could only afford the singles when when she was in the <laughs> UK. So yeah, I had heard, heard a bunch of them, but that was just a peerless record. And one of the most genius things about it was because there were eight songs on each side. And particularly the B-sides, uh, as as time went on, got longer and longer to hear, like something goes wrong again. You know, that's quite a long song. Um, the album, I think, ran like 56 or 57 minutes, which is, it's it's about 16 minutes longer than a record should run if you want it to sound good and loud. So you couldn't actually get, at least the original American pressing, you couldn't get the pressing really loud if you played it on your crappy homes, you know, stereo. Oh, so there was a limit. There was a limit in terms of length of, 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 of an album. Yeah, like when you, when you master a record now, they're like, you know, once you start getting past 40 minutes, like 20 aside, you know, you got to be careful. And the other thing is that the bands between the songs take up a lot of space proportionally because they're, they're wider, you know? So they, so it was with eight songs, you know, you had seven, seven bands separating the eight songs and it was really long. So they have to reduce the volume. Otherwise the record will just skip like crazy. So you couldn't get it really loud, which was, which was really frustrating. And you of course made up for it by singing as loud as you could over the song. <laughs> <laughs> I've now got this image of you and this man, Mancunian called Sophie <laughs> screaming out uh, buzzcocks in, in, in small town, uh, small town. Well, Suburban yeah, America, suburban. yeah. Suburban, yeah, suburban Chicago. <laughs> um, well, it's probably a good time to talk about what happened next before we sort of wrap up this part um, because they went in, they were recording demos for a fourth album, but 
Dun dun dun. Paul, what happened next? <laughs> well, they did. They did. They, they took like a year off after a different kind of tension, and they came back, and a Pete was still clearly in a bad way. If you listen to the three songs he did, "Are Everything," uh, "What Do You Know," and uh, "Strange Thing." I mean, "Strange Thing" particularly is about depression. It's about him being depressed, and he's off his head on lots of drugs. And they they got Martin Hannett back in, who is as well documented wasn't the most robust of characters when it came to, to uh, his ingestion of illegal substances, and he made these three singles. So at this point, they were the put the delineation between Pete Shelley and Steve Digger was such that they pressed the sleeves fifty percent where the glue bit went on the Pete Shelley song, and fifty percent where the glue and the late the two sides went. They were that determined that no one could tell what was the A and the B side that they, they even pressed half the sleeves differently. Because obviously when you get a single and you hold it up, you can yeah. think that's the back, that's the back of the single because that's where the two sides have been glued down. So they did half of them. So you, half of them. So it's like side one and side A they had. So you couldn't and, <laughs> and, and, and and this was all up and this was all up was it just about egos? I presume it was. Point? I think I, I presume it must have been. I think they must have said I think Steve Diggle must have said, I want parity and I don't want my... So you, you, it was all set out so you couldn't say what was... Which was, which basically is hopeless in terms of getting it on the radio because straight away you can't say this is the single. And it, it, I think that, there's a, that, that that randomly reminds me of... I think when the movie Towering Inferno came out yeah. and it was Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and whoever's Very name similar. was on the right-hand side had to, had to have it slightly higher... So, yes, yes, it's second, but it's also higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. So then they did these three singles, and then they were doing, as you say, they were doing demos for a fourth album, and Pete Shelley had a bit of writer's brock, so he said, what I'll do is I'll go and work with Martin Russian and we'll, I'll work on some songs, and I'll come back. And he went up, and they switched the drum machine on, and he started writing some songs, and he wrote um, Homo Sapien, and they said, well, actually, this sounds fantastic. As it is, why would we give? It, why would we then take the drum machine off, give it to the Buzzcocks? So he finally got and to have his so electric, his electronic influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And um, I mean, you got you got to remember about Martin Russian is he had just done Dare, which is you know the, probably the most successful mm. pop electronic album of all time. So there was nothing to stop Pete Shelley at that point. He didn't need a band. I mean, and, and quite. Um, I don't think it was the nicest thing to do. He, he then wrote to the band and said, I'm not coming back. He didn't go and see them. No, no. First thing, John Marr, who we haven't mentioned, by the way, we haven't mentioned John Marr and Steve Garvey, who were absolutely mm. fundamental to the success of Buscox as, as bass player and drummer, respectively. They were absolutely brilliant. And you talk about um, moving away from the pulse beat, that's, the drums on that are just incredible. The drums on all Buscox songs are just fantastic and a massive part of their appeal. But uh, so he, he he sacked the rest of the audience. Oh, he, he told the rest of the band by letter that he wasn't coming back, and then, then that was it. Then they were done, and he went on. He he did Homo Sapien. He did um, Telephone Operator, which, as John rightly mentions, was a Jets of Air song that was from like nineteen seventy four. That was his second single. He, did, he got quite. He was quite successful for a while. So that was it, and then they stayed split up. And then, depending on who you who the, who tells the story. Steve Diggle did some gigs. He had a band called uh, Flag of Convenience. And depending on who tells the story, completely unbeknownst to Steve Diggle, they started billing 
flag of convenience was Buscock's FOC. Now, he, he maintains he knew nothing about that. And then, but the promoters had done it behind his back. And then people started saying, well, if it was Buscock's, we'll give you a lot of money. So they got offered a lot of money for gigs. And, they, and so by like the end of, sort of mid-1989, the, the, the offers had come in to tour America and tour the UK, and then they got back together. I think ostensibly, just to begin with, just to play live. Well, we'll, 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 co- we'll cover that reunification um, in, in, in the next part, although I've already got this image in my head of when Bucks Fizz were touring as Bucks Fizz and the real Bucks Fizz, and there yes. was these two different Bucks Fizzes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, John, um, how final word from you on, on, on this one? Um, so the band have basically split. Um, they're not, they're, so they, they basically disappear for the 80s? Um, yeah, well, you know, the story I heard was originally that what the, the three singles that came out, out after a different kind of attention was intended to be just a, an endless series of sing. I mean, I don't think not endless, but they didn't have any due date. And uh, Pete Shelley had actually written the A side for the fourth, or I shouldn't say A side either, but he'd written his song for the fourth one um, called I Look Alone, which ended up on the C81 cassette that NME put out of mostly bands on Rough Trade. Great song. And yeah. um, and Steve Steve Garvey wrote a really great song that was going to be on one of the future singles uh, called Running Away From Home that, that didn't come out for years and, and then only as a demo. And, I, and apparently everybody was pretty despondent by the fact that none of the singles really raced up the charts. And I think it, as, as Paul said, you know, uh, Pete went in to do the demos they were fine on their own and the band just kind of eroded to the point where somebody had a chance to jump ship that looked pretty good. And that's how it happened. Mm. Okay. Well, it's probably as good a time as any for us to jump ship temporarily. Um, this would be the end of part one. And obviously there's a part two, it's still on the same website. So I'm going to keep this very brief. Um, Nick, I'll see you on the other side. Yes. Paul and John. Well, I'll see you in about five minutes really. So <laughs> bye. Thank you so much for your time and your stories, Paul Hanley and John Henderson. You can hear more of Paul on full podcast Oh Brother, where he and his brother Steve have guests like Vic Reeves, Steve Albini and Henry Rollins. He's also appeared on previous Temporary Fandoms episodes, talking about Arthur Lee's love, which you can find in the show's archive at infrequency.co.uk, and on new and spin-off podcast MSG, talking about Manchester's rafters. John has also been on the show before, talking about none other than The Fall. You'll also find that on Infrequency. Thank you to my assiduous co-host Ewan for working so hard on every episode and to Jonathan Fisher for his towering theme tune. Join us again on the next episode as we complete the Buzzcocks discography. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and your mother wants to know about all those stains on your jeans.